Breaking juicy scoops is one of the most exciting and rewarding parts of a journalist's job. There's nothing like the high that you get when you know that the story you've been pouring time and effort into is published and you know that people won't be able to find that information anywhere else. So where do these scoops come from? And how do we navigate sensitive information and treat the parties involved fairly? I'm Miriam Sears and I'm taking you into the newsroom. So, Aura, what's it like to break scoops? It's the most exciting, exhilarating part of the job, of the career, and also, I would say, of my personal life. Yeah. It's, um, that's why you become a journalist. Yeah. You become a journalist to dig out the scoops, to see them published. Um, you're not there to regurgitate press releases. You're just there to talk to the people and to find the golden nugget yeah. um, in, in, in a lot of noise that is out there. Um, so it's a very, very rewarding uh, part of the profession. I genuinely think it's addictive. Like it, there's some it sort definitely of addictive. Is, totally, totally. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's the reason why you wake up as a journalist <laughs> in the morning and wish to go want want to go to the uh, to the newsroom, brave the crowds, the uh, <laughs> the, 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 the London the London traffic, and uh, get into the newsroom and get the scoop. Definitely. So I've asked you to chat with us today because you've broken a few scoops in your time as uh, a journalist covering uh, various uh, gas markets in Eastern Europe and uh, Turkey as well. Um, and uh, I thought it would be interesting to look at as a bit of a case study at a scoop that you broke last year, because I think it works really well as an interesting story to look at how you found the information uh, then how you kind of followed through, made sure that you went to all of the different parties involved and, and treated everyone fairly. So um, maybe just before we get into the story of the story, uh, we probably need you to explain a little bit about what was the story that, that you broke yeah, last sure, year that we're going sure. to talk about. Sure. Um, in 2016, two transit contracts expired on the famous Trans-Balkan pipeline. This pipeline is the pipeline that takes Russian gas uh, via Ukraine uh, through the Republic of Moldova, Romania, Bulgaria, into Turkey, and then another spur goes into uh, Greece. Mm. Now, these two contracts that I mentioned were on the Ukrainian-Romanian uh, border and on the... Uh, it was more on the Romanian side, but yeah. I'm talking here the uh, Ukrainian-Romanian border. And then the other one was on the Romanian-Bulgarian uh, side. Mm. Um, in theory, under European uh, regulations, when the long-term transit uh, contracts expire, um, um, third-party access has to be applied on these interconnection points. So in 2016, when these contracts expired, we were very excited here at ISIS. We thought that um, there would be big changes in Eastern Europe. Of course, the, the talk was always that Eastern Europe was very much dependent on Russian gas, not just through supplies, but also through transit. Mm. And we were expecting to see alternatives. Of course, you know, we were expecting Russia to remain a dominant supplier, but we were also expecting other sources and other companies to step in. Mm. 
Um, however, over the years, I realized that um, th there was not much activity and that, in fact, nothing had changed from the status quo, even though on paper there should have been third party access, there wasn't. So I started to ask around what was happening and um, what um, if indeed there were any other third third party third party access on these pipelines. Mm. And talking to a few of my contacts, um, I found out that there wasn't on the uh, Romanian uh, side of of the uh, the pipeline. So on the on the um, at the Sakcha interconnection point. Um, digging a little bit deeper, I uh, I found out that in fact uh, when the negotiations took place and when interconnection uh, the interconnection agreements had to be signed by all parties involved. Um, I was told that uh, Gazprom had refused to um, support this and in fact um, it asked Romania to implement the uh, Russian gas day. Now this is a very, uh, you would say a tiny thing, right? It's, it's just a, a, a mismatch between the Russian gas day and the uh, Romanian gas day which by the way um, has to follow the, uh, the, the European gas day. So. Um, uh, there was a mismatch, but because of this mismatch, there couldn't be uh, an alignment, mm -hmm. and uh, for that reason, there couldn't be an interconnection. The interconnection agreement couldn't be signed, um, and the discovery and the, the revelations came actually, and it was actually absolutely uh, by chance. Uh, it it just came a month after uh, the European Commission had fa had published its uh, findings on the uh, antitrust. Um, investigations um, in, um, in in Gazprom's activities in the uh, in Eastern Europe mm. and found that through various instruments like forcing Bulgaria to um, maintain the uh, destination clause um, it was actually blocking competition um, but of course no one looked into the even finer details yeah. of, of these um, agreements and that was the mismatch between the Russian gas day and the uh, the, the gas day uh, on the Romanian side. So let me pause you there. Please, yes. <laughs> um, you've got an inkling that something isn't right because you were expecting this competition to be freed up between on the, the uh, interconnection between Romania and Ukraine and seeing new sources of supply perhaps and it's not happening. Um, uh, and there's this investigation happening at the same time. You mentioned that you spoke to sources, but uh, was it really just based on your intuition and then asking questions? Yes, it was pretty much based on intuition because I was curious to see what was happening. I I just couldn't hear of any activity on that border. And uh, um, that started to raise questions, put questions in my mind. Why exactly don't we see anything happening there? Why um, why can't we hear of any other um, companies being active? What's mm. happening? So mm. that, that, was, that was a question that I had been worrying about, let's say, for, mm -hmm. for months. So after 2016, when these contracts expired, I thought I'd, I'd give myself a couple couple of months to see what's happening and then start looking into it and I just watched it let's put it this way it was it was always at the back of my mind mm. but 
at some point I thought, okay, I really need to check what's happening now because um, I don't see any activity. And this was two years after uh, the 2016. Uh, yes, that, yes. I mean, I mean, we had the story two years after the uh, the 2016 expiry, but the story had been at the back of my mind. Right. For the previous month. So mm. between 2016 and 2018, I, I kept thinking about it mm. and I kept watching it. Yeah. Um, and then at some point I thought, OK, we're, we're nearly approaching two years now. Yeah. Let's see what's happening. Mm. And this is the sort of story, I guess, where, um, I mean, f- first of all, you're talking about uh, post-Soviet eastern states where uh, information is hard to come by. Um, so right from the start you need good contacts uh, mm. to be able to ask these questions but but you can't just ask one person these you need to ask a of course um, so I started asking around and um, it's a question of really corroborating what different people tell you because some people may know only one angle of the mm. story mm. and then you need to ask yourself more questions and maybe that particular person will not be able to tell you everything you need to go to others and and even if that particular per- person tells you everything um, and in my case I had a very good contact who knew many things um, I still had to back up uh, the information I had to to confirm that what this particular person was telling me um, actually really did happen and um, yes I expanded my contacts and as you say uh, it's a it's a matter of building a really good network of contacts and um, not just in one country because these transit pipelines by their definition are transit pipelines and Mm. they travel across many countries so you need to ask in each country you need to ask what was happening at that particular point Uh, once I got the bigger picture then I could go to the um, to the parties involved and put the story to them um, um, of course, the, the, the European Commission was also involved because at the time, I, I forgot to mention, at the time I found out that the Commission was actually aware of what was happening. Mm. Um, so I had to go back to the Commission and, and ask them what their position was. They they came back with a statement which we ran. Um, they, they told us that as, as a Commission they just provide the broader legal framework and then it's down to the regulator to the national regulators to implement the frameworks then I had then I also went to the uh, um, um, you know to Gazprom and and put the story to them gave them the opportunity to reply also went to the TSS the transmission system operator so you know it's it's it it was a it it was a slow burning process it didn't happen overnight it Mm. took me a couple of um, weeks to work on that that story yeah and uh and i i think it's fair to say you weren't just talking uh, talking to the press representatives at no, those companies no no Pre- press representatives the, the one thing i learned in my uh <laughs> in my 10 year uh, work at isis and then a few other a few more years as a as a journalist working for newspapers is that press officers will give you the official statement uh, but it will be very hard to get a story, an inside story, unless, of course, they they really want 
to drive the message out or yeah. you know there you know one thing i learned as a journalist is when someone gives you a scoop is to ask why exactly they want to give it to you because yeah. they may have a an axe to grind against someone mm. um so it it will always be the collateral sources people who know what's happening but are not there to protect the interests of uh, mm. of that particular company so it's you know it's it's cultivating those people who who really know what they're talking about but are also um you know a little bit in in the shadow <laughs> yes um in at isis in our news team we have really strict sourcing policies which mm. means that um in order to publish a story about something that's happening we have to have a primary source of information confirming this mm. um and if you can't get that then you need to be really thorough in finding yes, those secondary sources or people who are at the meetings in question or yes, yes. Um, so you've 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 talked to loads of people you've been thinking about this issue for two years uh it's it's you've got loads of questions you're asking questions when was it that you realized this is a really important story that needs to be told. Um, I suppose as soon as I started to build up the picture and uh, to get information from various sources, and um, as soon as th that that picture crystallized in my mind, I was already um, ready to 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 go and to prepare it for publication mm -hmm. uh, not before obviously checking with everyone because um, this was a big story uh, and yes. um, you know it involved um, important companies so yes you're you're I mean it's a story that a lot of big companies wouldn't have wanted you to write about I think. yes absolutely absolutely um, and and I suppose I expect you had a, a bit of caution or you, you, you would have been very uh, well, cautious as, about as a, as a journalist you're, you're cautious first of all um, about your sources and for me um, the ethics of the job are always prevailing um, and if I can't protect my source then I will not write my story mm -hmm. um, because that source trusts me with the information mm. And I need to reciprocate that trust. Um, so for me, that's my priority. Um, number two is obviously to protect the interests of, of our publications, of mm. ISIS. We don't want to run a story that will uh, end up in court. Yes. And <laughs> we, will, we end up in court paying millions and millions of, of uh, pounds in, in damages. Mm. Um, and at the end of the day, it's my credibility as a journalist. Um, yeah. If I publish something that is completely wrong mm. uh, or defamatory, then and doesn't give the opportunity to the parties involved to respond, then that will say a lot about me as a journalist and about my poor credentials. Yes, because at the end of the day, this story is saying Gazprom, one of the biggest most powerful companies uh, in the gas market in the world is preventing uh, a competition to open up on this pipeline as required by law. Exactly. So what we needed to do was 
be a hundred percent sure. Yes, absolutely. That absolutely. this was happening. And and most importantly, to give Gazprom um, the, the opportunity to uh, to to reply. I I do that not just with Gazprom. I do it with any other company. Mm. Um, and you know, from our point of view. Um, we we are independent here. We 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 don't have a a dog in the fight, so to speak, yes. right? And uh, you know, we, we we need to give everyone the opportunity to reply and to uh, um, to to defend themselves, or not defend, but at least to to argue their their point of view. Mm. Mm. So, um, somewhat frustratingly, I guess, since um, we published this story, we haven't really seen a new investigation opened up by the Commission into uh, competition laws at this point and we haven't seen any real changes happening. Yes, but I suppose that's the uh, that's another reason to look into another investigation, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to follow it up, that's what the journalist does. It uh, continuously f- uh, follows the stories and uh, uh, makes sure that um, it, th- th- the information comes out in the public. Uh, no, indeed, we didn't have a response so far, but um, other stories, for example, did. And I'm very proud um, to say that uh, a few years ago, we had a similar investigation on um, um, the fact that Romania, uh, that the Romanian grid operator, gas grid operator, Transgas, was not publishing um, uh, transit information flow data on this particular pipeline, on the Trans-Balkan pipeline, even though under re- European regulation there mm-hmm. is an obligation to publish information transparently. Um, we did an investigation and um, following this investigation, which was published in our reports, um, Transgas started to publish uh, flow data on the website. So that was a small victory, but uh, it was it was something that that we helped the market, we helped participants, and uh, I'm very proud of that. Mm. And, um, mm. These are the, uh, the the rewards of the job. Yes, and it just goes to show how important business journalism might be, even though it's not quite as glamorous as uh, newspaper journalism. Well, you know, what's glamorous? (laughs) I mean, for me, it's more glamorous to to write about uh, oil and gas than uh, showbiz, for example, but uh, (laughs) it's personal personal opinion. Um, And, uh, you know, journalism is a a tremendous profession. It it makes a great deal of difference to people. If it's properly done, Mm. it, it makes a um, it makes a difference and it helps, and um, it's it's good when you get when you get positive feedback and obviously you get negative feedback as well and uh, you have to keep a, a serene mind <laughs> <laughs> and uh, take everything on board. Well, with that serene mind image, yes. we'll finish there. <laughs> um, I'll pop up the links to those uh, that investigation that we've been talking about. Uh, uh, with this podcast on the isis.com website if you want to have a look. Thanks for listening.